Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Ephesians 5, 15-21 Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That little introduction, please be ready for the Bible reading. That was fantastic. Nice little moment just to get everyone's attention. It's lovely to hear people chatting as well. Um, yeah, great to be with you talking in this series. Again, Walk in Love um, from Ephesians chapter 5. Please do have your Bibles open. We're going to drill into these particular verses today, verses 15 to 21, and a reasonable bit of detail. Um, but let me just ask a question to start us off. Have you ever noticed how different people walk and the different ways or styles by which that they, they walk? I think some people, if you notice when they walk, they walk in kind of a bit of a labored way. Looks like they've had a tough life. It's hard down in the coal mines or something. I don't know. Others very proud, kind of upright, chest out, looking up, you know, like royalty, kind of walking along like this. Um, but there are others who've got quite a jolly walk, quite up and down, things like that. People say you can tell a lot about people from the way that they, they walk. I don't know if you've ever noticed that or sort of body language reader of that. Um, there was actually a time in my life when I had such terrible pain in my right jaw and down my right neck and side that I, I was recommended to go and see an Alexander Technique practitioner. I did not know what an Alexander Technique practitioner was or did. I was just so desperately in pain that I thought anything is worth a try. So I went along, and the first thing I was asked to do was to kind of walk in front of him. Very strange experience, kind of walking up and down. And he very quickly diagnosed me just from my walk. I was leaning too far over to the left um, very subtly and not using my glutes enough in my strides. He gave me some different exercises and stretching techniques. And I, I found, actually, that I was... I was feeling a lot better and the pain was going from just, just from the way that I was walking. Now, why am I sharing that with you? Well, we need, you need to examine your own walk, your spiritual walk. This is how Paul begins this first century letter, which is so relevant to us today. Verse 15 in Ephesians, he is saying, notice, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. 
We need to analyze our walk. Walk is just a metaphor, if you hadn't picked that up, for live, how you live as a, as, as a follower of Jesus, your spiritual walk. We're to give close examination to, to analyze each step, to make sure we're not off balance. So this morning, I'm just going to give you five questions that are going to come up, five questions to help you in your, in your spiritual walk. A bit of an MOT, if you like, because to change metaphors, sometimes the rust can build up in the Christian life can't it? Through bad habits, you become a bit oily, a bit squeaky, a bit uncomfortable. And certainly that's happened over the last 18 months. And and other times you might find that your tire treads start to wear down quite a lot. The, the pressures of life and culture kind of, kind of wear you down and they get a bit worn out and you stop being able to steer a kind of straight course anymore. Now that I think it happens to all of us at some points. And if it isn't happening to you right now, praise God, you know, it will in time. Um, and so you're going to need these questions to, to help examine your walk. Why? Well, we're following off the back of a Waco sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. This is Paul saying that the church is alive in Christ. We've been awakened by the power of God's spirit. and We're called to go out and be salt and light, to shine, to awaken a world from spiritual slumber. And in order to do that effectively, we've got to examine the way that we're walking. So it's a bit of an MOT stop service station morning for all of us. So here's my first question for you. Are you being careful or careless? Perhaps you've noticed, or maybe you haven't, and that's the point, so much of your life is lived on autopilot. It just happens without thinking. You're doing certain things. So maybe the first thing that you do when you wake up in the morning is that you reach for your mobile phone. It's just instinct now. As soon as you wake up, Digital distraction, in your face, screen, all this kind of stuff, social media, what's going on, news, weather. Or maybe it's a different routine for you. As soon as you get home from a busy day at work, or as soon as you put your kids to bed, it's flick on net switch, net, net switch, Netflix, <laughs> or its equivalent. Um, and you're just vegging in front of you know, the TV, just kind of like, I'm so exhausted, I can't do anything else. It just becomes autopilot. Or maybe for you, it's that you're a people pleaser. You've got an addiction, kind of addictive need for approval. And so you say yes to things that when you stop to actually think about it, you realize you should never have said yes to do that. And now you're stuck, you're busy, you're, you're overwhelmed. The problem, of course, is, is the thinking part, not stopping to actually think, to pause to pay attention, to notice what's going on in you, being present to God and to others. We're so busy, we run around like headless chickens all the way over the place, we, we don't engage our brains. And so Paul, God saying through Paul today, look, look, take a long, hard look at your life. How are you doing? How's your walk? Holly and I, a couple of weeks back, we, we noticed that we were waking up in the morning feeling exhausted continually. 
And when we started to think about this and so that where's that coming from, we realized that actually we've been staying up in the week watching your great TV dramas, not bad stuff like Time or BBC iPlayer, stuff like that that's out there. But we wanted to get to the end of the episode. So we were staying up a lot later than we should. So we were waking up in the morning feeling exhausted. Simple course correction. And we're doing a lot better. What about you? What about you? As Christians, we are called to live the wise life. Wisdom is not simply knowing lots of stuff. It's knowing what to do with what you know, knowing how to apply it, how to live it out. So wisdom, for example, would be knowing how a gun works. Sorry, knowledge would be knowing how a gun works. Wisdom is knowing whether, if ever, you should use it. And as Christians... We're given extraordinary wisdom. It's the born-again believer's birthright. The moment that we come to faith, we're lavished with the stuff, wisdom. Because we know God, we therefore know how to live right. We have a privilege that so many others, they don't know what we get to know. We're given this gift of, of wisdom. And so my question for you is, what are you doing with it? What are you doing with this precious gift of wisdom? How are you really living? Are you stopping to think about your spiritual walk with God? That's the first question. The second question is, are you seizing the day or wasting your life? Are you seizing the day or wasting your life? Verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. As Christians, this world is not our home. It is temporary. We are passing through it, if you like, which means that the clock is ticking. At the cross and the resurrection, the death warrant on this world order under all of its evil tyranny and all of that, 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 that death warrant has been signed. That world is over and it is being phased out, moved away. There is a time coming when God will judge the living and the dead, when all evil will be removed from this world. Wrongs will be righted. Justice will be done. There will be a new beginning of a new heaven and earth that God will bring in of this world, cleansed of all of the sin and destructive stuff within it. That day is coming. This clock is ticking over all of our lives. We will all soon be face to face with God. So it really matters how we live now. And this evil epoch, this era is phasing out. So we are called to seize the day to ensure that as many people as possible can join us in the new heavens and the new earth. How do we make the best use of this time then? But it's not by being legalistic, it's actually by living a very disciplined life, not sort of flogging yourself, you know, beat myself up. No, actually, I feel it's about being disciplined to hearing God speak, disciplined in not quenching the spirit of God, not quenching the promptings, his guidance coming, saying, go there, do this, don't do that, say this, being alert to what God is saying to us all of the time. A great example of this comes from Acts chapter 8, and it's Philip, one of the people who's appointed as a sort of deacon in Acts chapter 6. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, 
and he's sensitive to God's prompting. So God speaks to him in Acts chapter 8 and says, I would like you to go over to this road. This road, there's a road over there, um, there's a kind of crossroad section. I want you to go over there. Now, if God said that to me, maybe if he said the same thing to you, you might be like me. I'm not going. Why should I go over to that road? It's a waste of time. What should I do there? There's nothing there at that road. There's nobody particularly there at that road. And I'm busy doing this already. Why would I go over there and do that? It doesn't make sense. You've got to tell me everything. But Philip doesn't do that. Philip just obeys. And he goes. And when he gets to that road, then God says, go over to this chariot. And he could have done the same thing again. Why that chariot? Why? What am I meant to do there? No, Philip just obeys. The Spirit's prompting to go, and he goes. What happens when he gets near this chariot? Of course, he hears an Ethiopian eunuch, a significant civil servant in the treasury to a queen, um, reading from the scroll of Isaiah, probably Isaiah chapters 52 into 53, the great prediction about Jesus written 700 years before he was even born about the manner and significance of his death. He was pierced for our transgressions and so forth. An extraordinary revelation. So he knows Philip. Wow, what a moment. I know the will of God. I must share the good news about Jesus with this man. So what does he do? He immediately asks a question. Such a helpful evangelism method. Ask a question. What is his question? Do you understand what you're reading? It's a great question. Now, you might be thinking, oh, I can never use that question because I never encounter people who are kind of randomly reading the Bible. <laughs> I could go over here them and go, oh, do you understand what you're reading? What about, do you understand the times that you're living in? Do you understand that news story? What significance of that? Do you, do you understand meaning of sex or, or marriage? Do you understand why there's suffering in, in the world? Or have you made sense of that? It's a great, it's a really great question if we would use that well in our conversations. But you might also be thinking, these kind of experiences, they never happened to me. Those extraordinary, exhilarating moments being called by God to take these steps, to lead someone to faith, to, hey, to be part of their baptism, wow. Now, I wonder whether that's because we never go to the road. And if we don't go to the road, we won't hear and really see the opportunity that God wants for us. We, if you like, fail at first instance. We quench the spirit because we're not listening. We're too preoccupied with what we're doing, or it just sounds too wacky, and I don't want to look like a fool. I'll just be so stupid if I do that. But we're called to obey. We're called to be holy fools in the right sense for Christ. And you have no idea what will happen if you do obey. The things that might happen, the next step that will open up or other things that will happen because you're being faithful and obedient. Let me just give you one simple story. It was a couple of years ago um, and our Tesco food delivery guy was coming. He comes usually once a week, Tuesday morning between 7 and 8 o'clock. That's when we get our food shop delivery. And I'm praying that, that I actually was. I'm not sure that I might have been wearing clothes at that point. I normally do my quiet time early shower, um, but sometimes I get interrupted in that. And I might have been in my pajamas greeting this man wearing my Star Wars Jedi dressing gown, which some of you will know about. Anyway, I, I'm greeting this guy. And he looks really unhappy at the door. He looks uncomfortable. He doesn't like he's in a good way. And that's sort of sending signals to my brain or oh, God speaking to me. And this guy needs help. He needs prayer. I'm going away and I'm unpacking the shopping, taking the crates, doing that in dialogue with God. Oh, I don't want to do this. I feel uncomfortable. 
I don't offer to pray for him. Should I pray for him? What will happen? What will it, will it go wrong? Anyway, the final crate, I give him the final empty crate back and I say to him, are you okay? And he says, no, I'm not. My back really hurts. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, okay. Do you know what? I'm a Christian. I'm actually a church pastor. I believe that God answers prayer. Could I pray for you? And so I pray for him. I lay hands on him. I actually, he lets me do that. He receives prayer and there's some improvement. I'll be honest with you, not a miraculous healing. You get those moments in life as a pastor, as a minister, where people like, they're literally running around the room declaring the praises of God because they've been miraculously healed. This wasn't one of them. It was like a small, minor improvement. He looked happier, he smiled, um, and then he went on his way. What I didn't know is that a few months later, it turns out my mother-in-law, a wonderful woman, she wouldn't call herself a regular churchgoer, she was staying over the night to help with childcare, was actually listening in on the whole conversation, watching what was taking place. And it stuck with her, and it moved her, and it spoke to her about God and his goodness, and it helped her get closer to Jesus. My point is, is just you never know about obedience. About two weeks ago, I felt a prompting from God to give a card to write a poem in a card for a gardener who works around here. And I was wrestling with this for weeks. Like I had to, I, I told our life groups I would be forced into actually doing something about this because I felt like if I just keep this to myself, I'm not going to do anything. So I mentioned it to a life group sort of quite subtly. Um, anyway, I finally got on and did this um, and I gave it to him on Monday. I felt like such an idiot, um, and, but I gave it to him. And he was really moved in that moment. I left my email address. I just left it with him. I didn't, he didn't really have much time to even you know, respond to the poem, to read it. He's busy with his work. And uh, later that day, I got the most glowing email response. That this so touched him. Would I like to meet up again? This is great. Just a door opened. But then strangely, two other doors opened that haven't opened for me for years here. Within days of that faithful step of obedience, I would find myself in the homes of two residents of Buckingham Gate, and one of them I would have a conversation with about Jesus. And I think that's because I was faithful in that step that God could trust me with more opportunities. What could happen? What could happen if we're all obedient to these little promptings and see what happens. And you'll never know whether it's God or you unless you have a go, unless you step out and you try. And sometimes you'll fail and you'll look the fool, but that's okay. God still loves you. In fact, I think he's really pleased with your step of obedience. It's not necessarily always about the outcome. It's about our willingness to be faithful to him. So why couldn't your seizing the day obedience result in Philip-like experiences? That's the second question. The third question is, are you understanding the Lord's will or playing the fool? Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. As this picture here, just have a think. You don't need to shout this out loud that's coming up. Which one of these people is the most foolish? Now, it could be number one, because he's just so naive. I don't like to think of naivety necessarily as the same thing as foolishness. So for me, it's obviously number four. He's literally soaring off the very branch that he's sitting on. That is a very good biblical definition of foolishness. 
right? Soaring off the very branch of your entire existence. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. When you do that, it's like goodbye, sensible explanation for the origin of everything. Hello, illogical, something came from nothing, a principle that we don't apply to any other area of our lives, but we'll try and make it apply for something here that's so important. It's like, well, that doesn't make sense. Or it's goodbye, any deeper sense of ultimate objective meaning in life. Hello, I can make things mean whatever I want to mean. Even that statement itself can mean, you know, but that statement's meaningless. I can go back and say, well, I can make things mean whatever I want them to mean as well. And, and, and that's meaningless. In fact, you're meaningless because I can say anything because I can make it mean whatever. It's just, it's just like, where does that go? That's ridiculous. There's that whole area of foolishness. Jesus speaks of another one in Luke chapter 12, parable of the rich fool. It's actually a really uncomfortable parable if we understand it rightly, because it's speaking to our cultures today and, and back then, of course, the insatiable desire for more. I want more stuff, more this, more that, all the time. You might call it greed, and we all get caught up in that. And so Jesus tells this parable about this rich farmer who gets more and more grain, and grain pretty much equals money back then. So he builds bigger and bigger barns to store it all. He might have bigger and bigger bank accounts today to store all this money. And Jesus turns to him and says, you fool, you're a fool. That's a really strong, like, oh, that's uncomfortable in the way that you should be hearing that. Oh, my goodness, he's calling this man a fool. He's calling pretty much the majority of the Western world, you fool. Because all of this could be taken away from you at any moment by theft, by fire, ultimately by death, which is what happens in the parable. He dies and he cannot take it with him. Why? Cannot give him eternal life. The same is true of so many things that people obsess, so many earthly things. Think of physical beauty. Hours, thousands of hours in front of the mirror, thousands of pounds on makeup. Yet yeah, you're going to get wrinkles as you get older. You're going to get cellulite. You're going to get fat and hair in all the wrong places. I'm 42. I can tell you now, I have to cut hair in my nose that hangs down. Like, what's going on there? It's disgusting. Why would you obsess about something that's so temporary and time-bound and insignificant rather than work on that which is eternal? There's eternal beauty that's coming that's unbelievable. You're going to get a glorified body in the new heavens and earth. And if you could see yourself of what you'll look like, then I tell you, you would worship yourself now. You're going to be so amazing. Why, why, why waste your life on this stuff? Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Live for the Lord's will. Live for his purpose. What is his purpose? What is his will? We'll go back to the beginning of this letter. Chapter 1, verse 10. God's ultimate purpose is to unite all things in the person of Christ. God's heart beats for reconciliation. Reconciliation. Reconciliation between God and man. Between different tribes and people groups coming together, Jews and Gentiles coming together between heaven and earth, all things that are broken and divided and destroyed by sin. God wants to reunite and restore and redeem everything. That's God's ultimate plan. And his church are to be his ambassadors of reconciliation. That's what the scriptures call us. 
with his consular staff on earth to go out with a message to reconcile all that is damaged, destroyed, broken by sin and to reconcile people back to their maker. That's the mission. That's our purpose. That's the will of the Lord. That's the opposite of what it means to be a fool. That's the wisest way to live. And so the question is, are you using your time and your talents and your treasures giving them over to the church for this ministry of reconciliation? Or are you about building earthly things and focusing on that? Or are you living with an eternal perspective, doing the will of the Lord? The fourth question is, are you stimulated by the Spirit or deadened by depressants? Do not get drunk on wine, verse 18, for wine leads to debauchery. It leads to further sinning, but be filled with the Spirit. How do you walk this wise life? How do you live it out? In the power of the Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit. I tell you what we do is we stop rowing in our own fleshly effort and we hoist the sail and we let the Spirit blow into that sail to guide us and to lead us to do what he wants to do. Paul's using a really interesting metaphor link to alcohol. And there's some similarity and there's some difference with this that he, he's deliberately drawing out. The difference is first, well, many people think that alcohol is a stimulant, but it's not, it's a depressant. It shuts down parts of your brain, stops you from thinking as clearly as you should. It, it deadens things and ultimately it exhausts you. Now, the scriptures have a place for the moderate use of alcohol. John chapter 2, Jesus himself, God himself, comes to turn water into wine at a wedding. Proverbs 31, there's a positive use of alcohol. 1 Timothy chapter 5, there's a positive expression of, of alcohol. This is the scriptures talking. But what the scriptures are absolutely clear about is that an abusive use, an excessive use of alcohol is destructive, is dangerous. Don't even go there. I love the way this is described in Proverbs 23. For me, it's almost an evidence that the scriptures are inspired. Um, in the way that it can so beautifully describe the issue of alcohol in the human heart. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly, i.e. it looks appealing and tempting. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will become strange things. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. I wonder over the last 18 months or so of this global pandemic, whether the stresses and the strains of it have left you going more and more to alcohol, to take the edge off. But that's kind of grown and grown and grown a little bit till you're now under its control. Rather than it being moderation, it's gone and you've lost that sense of ability to be, be in charge of this gift. This gift is now ruling you. If that's you, we're not here to judge you. We want to help you with that. We want to be a blessing. We want people to be set free, that there'd be nothing controlling them except 
accept the positive influence of God in their lives. You see, as Christians, we're not called to to be under the influence of alcohol, but under the influence of the Holy Spirit, led and controlled and shaped by him. And the Spirit is the great stimulant. He exhilarates. He doesn't exhaust. He, He gives life. He doesn't deaden. He blesses. He builds up. Now, if you've seen the film Limitless, it's a TV series as well now, you'll know that in that film, there's a nootropic drug called NTZ48. This little substance pill, it's all fictitious, of course, where they say that, you know, they say human beings, we only use whatever between 3 and 10% of our brains. But if you take this pill, you can use 100% for a certain period of time. And you can do unbelievable things. You can make massive amounts of money and so forth and change the world for the better and all of that. It, it amplifies the human natural ability. It's not dissimilar to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate stimulant, though, stimulating every faculty to operate effectively for him. Your mind, your heart, enlarging your heart, the ability that you have to love, (laughs) the joy that's going on inside you. The joy is really interesting to me. I think this explains what's going on in Acts chapter 2. At Pentecost, you may know the story that a group of believers are gathered and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes down and these believers are able to speak in languages, human languages, that they've never been to university to study, that are understood by people who've gathered from all different parts of the world for this great festival in Jerusalem, and it's making sense to them. But there are others who are looking on at this holy Boldness, courageous, joyous, cacophony of noise and exhilaration and wow, hallelujah, praise Jesus moment. And they're like, these people are drunk. What's going on? This doesn't make sense. And it's like that, they fill with new wine. They don't get it. You see, they've got no vocabulary to describe what's going on. Boldness and joy together. They put it down to alcohol. It's the power of the Spirit. I believe that the day that someone comes into this place or someone you know who's had an experience at Westminster Chapel says to you, what is going on there? Those people, they're drunk. I'd be like, come on. Yes, this is it. This is revival. It's coming. It's exciting. But that you're getting a sense of that's the atmosphere of what it maybe should be a little bit more like in church. So how then do we drink deep of the Spirit? How do we encounter the Spirit? Well, three things. Number one, we do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by our sin. So we must confess and repent of sin. We looked at that a few weeks back. I won't dwell on it. Number two, do not quench the Holy Spirit. That means be obedient to what he's telling you to do. And I would err on obedience rather than err on fear. Uh, Have I got this right? Obey. Number three, we ask. We ask continually. Luke chapter 11, verse 13. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What an invitation. What an opportunity to ask for the Holy Spirit. What happens? What does it look like? Well, we started to describe it already, but Paul in verses 19 to 21 lists four things that that will happen, that we'll see more of if if we're more full, filled up with the Holy Spirit or the present continuous tense here, go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Go on drinking and getting drunk on the presence of God. Number one, we will build each other up. The way that we will speak, sing, interact with each other 
will be one of sharing the gifts that God has given each of us. And they will overflow prophecy, singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And we'll start to strengthen and give life to each other. And you'll come away from a place like that feeling a thousand times stronger than the moment that you walked in. Because there were people who were speaking, ministering God's goodness to you and the gifts that they've given you. And you'll feel so alive because you were like, God used me. And I was able to pray or speak or do this for this person. (laughs) And the Spirit came and wow, hallelujah. The second thing is we will worship from the heart. There'll be a sincerity, an authenticity, just an overflowing of joy that comes out. People who can struggle to raise their hands, like, anybody looking? Put it up. Oh, (laughs) it's like that kind of thing. Or, you know, I tell you, they'll be so unrestrained and uninhibited under the power of the Spirit. It might look like they're drunk because they're just overflowing in genuine joy in who God is and what he's done. Number three, we'll give thanks non-stop. Paul actually says always giving thanks. They will always give thanks without ceasing, without ending, giving, giving thanks. And this is a theme that keeps repeating throughout all of Paul's writings. Why? Because Christians don't do it, basically. If you feel discouraged or depressed right now, I'll almost guarantee that you haven't been thanking God today or throughout the past week. It's a powerful practice. And then he says, everything. Thank God always for everything. What? You mean the good and the bad? Yes. How do we do that? Because we believe Romans chapter 8, verse 28, God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we know that's true because at the cross, the worst thing that ever happened in the world, the brutal killing and murder of Jesus, God himself on the cross, God works into the very best thing that ever happens in human history, the salvation for all who would believe in Jesus. And if he can do that, then with time and perspective, he can turn the bad in our lives for good. And we'll know in this life, but certainly in eternity, his thinking, his logic, his reasoning of why that was good. We can give give thanks. Are you thanking God? Always, for everything. Finally, point number four in this section is we submit respectfully to people in authority. Not to everybody, but to those that God has put in authority positions in our lives. Paul's going to go on to unpack this in the context of marriage, in the context of family, parenthood, in the context of, um, uh, in the context of work as well. There is some authority that's going on here. He's not saying, children, you're now equal with your mum and your dad. And they can say something, but your voice counts just as much. So if you disagree with them, it's kind of equal par. There's no way forward here. It's not, it just doesn't make sense. The whole context is different there. He's reshaping authority to a Christ-like, servant-hearted, foot-washing model of authority. And we're called to submit, just as Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. A beautiful submission that brought about salvation. And we're called to submit to government, church leaders, and all these different areas of authority, rightly, for the glory of God. And only the Holy Spirit can help us to do that. Otherwise, we'll want to live my rights, my will, all the time. This leads me to the final point. Are you fueled by fear? Are you fueled by fear? (laughs) Many people today think fear is the opposite of love or is an opposite of love. If fear is over here, then love is over here. They're not 
really close to each other. And that's the cultural way that we've been conditioned to think about this idea of fear. And if you've been in one of our life group clusters, you'll know all about this. Um, an example of how our culture thinks about fear would be the brilliant Yoda who says, fear is the path to the dark side. Fear is like this great evil to be avoided at all costs in society. But fear for a Christian is a good thing. Did you catch that? Fear for a Christian is a, is a great thing. And it's not the same as fear for a non-believer. They work quite differently. For the Christian, now, we have no fear of punishment from God. You might think that should be a sense of terror. That's what drives every believer, that they might fear being punished and, um, and attacked by God for doing wrong things. There's no fear of punishment that is legitimate in a Christian's life. Why? Because the punishment fell on Jesus Christ, who is God. God chose to take the punishment himself for us. He's paid in full. There is now no more punishment. I tell you, the terror and the shaking should be for us that God would do that. And if we really grasp the gospel that's the fear that should be awakened. I tell you, this God is a scary God. That he would die for sin. That he would be so merciful. That he's so unlike us, unlike me, in his goodness and his grace and his generosity. That, that this, this makes, me, makes, me, makes me fearful in a sense of his awesome goodness. And that's what's going on in verse 21. The conclusion here, submit to one another, do all that's gone before out of reverence for Christ. And the correct word there would actually be fear. Fear of Christ. Fear for Christ. Jacob had an experience like this in Genesis chapter 28. Jacob is a man who's on the run. He's a criminal, really, on the run from having just cheated his brother out of his inheritance. He's... He's a bad guy. His name means trickster or con artist and like the modern kind of vocabulary. He's on the run and he gets to this place called Bethel and he falls asleep and he has a dream and God meets with him in the dream. And what does God do? God just simply is graciously blessing him and he says to him, um, Jacob, I'm going to give you the land that you're lying on. I'm going to give you children and offspring, and those offsprings are going to go on to bless the whole world, and I'm going to be with you. My presence will go with you to protect you, to guide you, to lead you. Amazing blessings. He's a criminal, yet he's been treated like a king. So he wakes up, and what is the number one emotion that he experiences when he wakes up recorded in Scripture? It says that he is afraid. He's afraid. He's in fear of such a good God. He's trembling. How awesome is this God? This is true of Jesus. It's always been true of Jesus. He is God, and in the Godhead, they experience the fear of one another. And you see a glimpse of this in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. There shall come forth from a shoot from the stump of Jesse. This is a prophetic prediction about Jesus. Jesus is the shoot, the true and better shoot. And a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then get this. And his delight. And his delight. 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 Shall be in the fear of the Lord. A delight. 
Jesus, God, he can never lose anything. It's not a fear of loss, this kind of fear. It can't be a fear of loss. It's a fear of the awesome beauty and majesty of God that'll be there forever. And it brings delight to Jesus. And it should bring delight to us as we see God, as we see Jesus for all that he is, for what he has done for us. We should marvel, we should be in awe, we should be amazed, we should be overwhelmed by his all-surpassing goodness and the grace of the cross. The best person to help us understand this, I think, is Professor C.S. Lewis. And he does this in his Chronicles of Narnia. I've only got time for two quotes for you. But if you don't know the story, it's sort of a typology. Um, Lewis actually calls it a supposal. And Aslan is a picture, a type of, of Christ in the story. And in the first um, well, well-known volume, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lucy encounters Mr. Beaver. And she's getting to know, who is this Aslan? Safe. Who said anything about safe, Mr. Beaver says to her. Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Lucy goes on on later to say, terrible pause if he didn't know how to velvet them. Enlarging our understanding of God. He has terrible claws that he could rip us apart with his justice at any moment. He's all-powerful, he's almighty. He isn't safe, he isn't under our control. But he chooses to velvet his paws through the blood shed at the cross of Jesus Christ so that he can embrace us so we're not destroyed by him. This is wonderful. I wonder sometimes, have we grown too familiar with these simple and extraordinary truths, the greatest of all truths, that we can be beloved of God and held close to him, even though we're dirty sinners. But he cherishes us and draws us close. It's this revelation, this understanding of God that would drive us to live a wise life. It's not so much... Um, the fear of punishment, well, it's not at all the fear of punishment that should drive a believer. Neither is it really, although there's a degree, you know, the fear of wasting your life. Or is it so much the, the fear of missing out and not having those amazing, exhilarating experiences of leading people to Christ and, whoa, these are some stories I've got to share. And, wow, I feel like I'm on fire for God. There's a little bit of truth in that, but no. The ultimate way that we can live wise lives is a fear of offending so good and so great our God. That we just won't allow that to happen. We won't allow ourselves to fall into sin. It just, it's just so wrong because he's so good. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. And I pray right now you'd help us all to examine ourselves. Examine how we're really doing and to be honest and to be real, not to be condemned and judged, 
But in order to walk in a manner that is wise, to make the best use of the time, to know your will, to not be foolish, to not get drunk on wine, but to be drunk on the spirit, to build one another up, to sing from the heart, to give thanks always, to submit rightly to you and to others in authority for your glory and your namesake, that we might be privileged to see many, many wake up from their spiritual slumber and turn to you in adoration and joy. So I'd ask you now, Lord God, come and fill this place again with your spirit. Turn us, change us from one degree of glory to another as we worship you, I pray. Amen. Let's stand, let's worship him.
Savior displayed on a criminal's cross. Darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. But then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. That's when. going to move now to a time of communion. So if you want to just take a, a cup that's nearby you, um, hopefully at home, if you, you know that this was coming, you've got some um, elements that you can use for the wine and the bread to represent the broken body of Jesus, the broken bread and the wine, the cup to represent his shed blood. We'll just give a moment so that everyone's got one in hand. It's a great thing to do for us as a family because Jesus encouraged us to do this. We're being faithful and obedient to him in celebrating this meal together. But it is a meal for those who believe. It's a meal for those who've crossed the line of faith, who trusting in Jesus only for their salvation. If that's not you, you yet, just, just watch along. You don't need to engage um, with this in this moment. Um, but we want to respond. And the moment we're gonna take the bread and we're going to take that as a moment of confession of sin. The Apostle Paul talked to the church in Corinth about how they should examine themselves when they take communion. And there's a moment of healthy examination of the heart. You can use the words of the psalmist, Psalm 139. Search me, O God. See if there is any unclean way in me. Let him speak to you. Let him reveal that. If you've been out of step with God, maybe you've lost your temper, you've got angry. Maybe you're struggling with alcohol. Maybe you're just willfully wanting to live your life, not being obedient to the will of God. You know that there's perhaps some things you need to confess to bring to him. You've not been living wisely. You've just been doing things on autopilot the same way that everybody else in this society is. But that's not what God has for you. It's a moment to take the bread and to remember that this 
bread represents his broken body that secures the forgiveness of sin. That we're doing this in faith, that we are forgiven. This is what this meal is to remind us of. Christ died for sin to bring us into relationship with him. It's a joy and a privilege, but we want to honor him in that by just taking a moment to search our hearts. And then in your own time, I would encourage you just to take a moment to bow your head, have a quiet moment of prayer with God. And then in your own time, once you've confessed, to take the bread and to chew it in faith that he's forgiven you. And then I'll pray. we thank you so much that you died for us that your body was broken to ensure that we can be forgiven we praise you you are so good you are so kind cleanse us all of our sin amen and then let's take the cup this is Jesus's shed blood so if you just peel off the next layer hopefully without spilling it. We drink his blood, remembering that he will come again, that he's victorious over sin, sickness, suffering, and death forever. Let's drink his, this symbol of his shed blood for us. Awesome God, again, we thank you we revere you. We fear you today. This God who made everything, who would privilege us to drink his blood that we might have life. And Lord, we're asking that that life would flow in greater abundance. Lord Jesus, help us to live our lives that really honor you. Lord, we pray for your filling of the Holy Spirit because we cannot do that without you. We're weak and we're frail. We're without hope. But Lord, you sent your spirit and we're asking, we're pleading that promise. How much more will you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask you? Lord, we're asking, please, would you fill us I'm asking for myself. I'm asking for everybody here in person, online, Lord. Please would you fill us afresh and anew. And let life come, this life that's been so beautifully described, drunken joy, holy boldness, declaring the praises of Jesus. Come in our midst, even now as we respond in song and worship, Lord God. Stir us up, set us free from lesser fears that hold us back. May the fear of you drive out all lesser fears that we might be a people unafraid of anything because we fear the God, we delight to fear the God of awesome goodness and love. Amen.
Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.